Hey, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. We talk to a different creative person every week about how they do their thing. And this week, my guest is comic and writer Guy Branham. More about Guy in a moment. First, a little housekeeping. Um, somebody I met recently said that they really liked the podcast and they were like, what can we do to help build it? Um, there's lots of things. You can go to DennisAnyone.net. And while you're there, you can look at pictures that go with the different podcasts. You can take my audience poll, which, ha- which helps me get advertisers. And you can donate to my tip jar if you feel like kicking in a little bit to help keep the podcast free. I really appreciate everything that everyone does. Um, and what else? Oh, you can subscribe for my newsletter there. I have one that's about to go out. Just all kinds of stuff about what's going on. And um, I guess that's about it. If you're listening for the first time, I hope you like what you hear These are the conversations that I love to have with creative people about, you know, the ups and downs of it all and what it's like to be them and the the good parts and the challenging parts and the crazy parts. So, um, which brings us to Guy Branham. He's probably best known for his appearances on Chelsea Lately. He was also a writer on that show. I worked with him for a while on Fashion Police and he's getting ready to head to New York to be a writer on Billy on the Street with Billy Eichner. And I was lucky to catch him before he went. So here he is. Enjoy Guy Branham. All right. I am here in the West Hollywood apartment of comedian and writer Guy Branham. Hello. Hello. It's good to be here in my apartment. It's good to be here in your apartment. Now, you are ground zero of Gayville. Yes. And there, I'm sure there are tweakers and joggers and dog walkers and all of that stuff. I live in the middle of the shit. And, you know, it's pretty <laughs> nice. It, it's not that bothersome. There's all, like... Sometimes you'll, like, hear stuff from the street on a Saturday, and it's nice with, like, you didn't go out on a Saturday. Yeah. But then there's also just, sometimes I'll get into, like, a very just doing comedy place. Yeah. And I'll forget to go out for months at a time. Yeah. And it's just, there's something so nice about, um, like, seeing little boys, like, coming home from the, like, staggering home from the bar and being like, guy... You should have more fun while you're here. Also, it's like the Grand Banks of Grindering. Like, it's just some of the highest quality Grindering, I think, that can be had in the continental United States. Right here, ground ground zero. Yes. And they're all hot to trot. But have you ever, like, have you found, like, somebody passed out in your yard or just, like, people blowing each other by the dumpster and stuff? Not remotely. I mean... Good. I mean, we periodically get some homeless people sleeping yeah. behind my car. Okay. But, uh, no. I mean, for public sex acts... It's no San Francisco. Yeah, you that's know? true. You really, you, you, you know what, you can't, you can't hold a candle to that. Yeah. Now, speaking of San Francisco, you've been tweeting lately about looking. I got into a fight with Daniel Franzese, where he got very offended by my looking tweets, and I felt semi-guilty, and then Andrew Hay faved some of his tweets getting mad at me, and I was like, well, I'll never work for that guy. Right. But I'm kind of fine with that. I hate that show. You hate that show. Now, uh, Daniel Friend, pronounce his name? Franzese? I think so. He's new this season. He's kind of like the bear character that's that's trying to make Augustine bearable. Yes. Um. (laughs) And they're they're very emphatic about how they, because they believe it is politically like appropriate for them to find bears sexually attractive, but they cannot bring themselves to sexualize him in any way. Um, and that's interesting, but mostly that show is just boring. Yeah. It kind of, I do like it. I will say I like it. Really? Why? I like it because I, I, I sometimes relate to some of the awkwardness of it and the, the subtle things in this last episode. Um, Dom, 
said to Doris, "This I feel so lost. I don't have anything." And I just really, I've been there. And and her friend, his his friend says, "I've got you." It's the I like some of the little moments. I really like. There is loveliness there, and there are so many things that it is exciting to see a television show deal with. I'm more and just, um, I should I should not be so mean to it, especially because I understand that part of it is just like that discomfort of seeing a traditionally underrepresented group represented in media. Yeah. Um, but oh, there's a really, really good article from, the, like, the New York Times reviewing, like, first or second season of The L Word, where a lesbian basically talks about my her discomfort watching the show is, like, the discomfort of I'm not used to being seeing myself represented in media. That said, it seems to be emphatic that, like, these aren't fun gay guys. These aren't gay guys like on Will and Grace. And I think in doing that you are kind of denying a fundamental aspect of the experience of being a gay guy. Like, we have to find... Like, we have to be using some means to provide our lives with meaning and make... Yeah. Like, make our lives fun. Like, why doesn't Patrick have a dream board party? Like, me and my friend Danny do, you know? Right. Why don't they do that? Like, uh, you know, there's... They, they, they do seem to, like, when is the silly thing going to happen? Right. They, they refuse to be silly. <laughs> and also, gay guys who aren't silly are generally some some nexus of super, super hot and working out all the time. Right. Or just, like, self-hating and mask. Yeah. Uh, and they're none of those things. They're beardy and boring. Yeah. And, like, I know beardy, boring gay guys from San Francisco, and they're more fun than that. <laughs> <laughs> there is sometimes an episode will go by, and I'm like, did it, is it done? Did the whole thing happen? Right. But um, I do like it. Um, I like Richie. I'm, one, I'm Team Richie over Team Kevin. The one from the first season where... Richie started talking shit at Patrick for being scared of bottoming. Um, was delightful, yeah. and I was like, "This is a, there was a TV episode about that. That's yeah. exciting." Russell Tovey's just so hot, though. I mean, Richie's clearly a better human being. Yeah, but Russell Tovey's so hot. He is hot. So anyway, on to on to other things. You're getting ready to go to New York. Yes. Uh, what are you going to be doing there? Uh, I'm going to be working on Billy on the Streets, which is now on True TV. That's right. There was a big announcement about it. Billy Eichner, who I worked with as a writer on the Big Gay Sketch Show, was Billy on the Big Gay Sketch Show. Third season. I maybe three seasons of the Big Gay Sketch. There were three, and it was the third season that I worked on it with uh, Billy. Okay. And that's we shared an office. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, and I remember me were you and... Were guys wa- both cast members? Or no, we were okay. we're writers. Okay. Both of us were writers. Billy wasn't a cast member. Okay. Um, but we shared an office. It was fun. But I do remember early on, me and one of the other guys, Alec, decided to paint the office because it was gloomy. And Craig and um, Billy were like, knock yourself out. I ain't fucking painting this office. Yeah. So um, we did, and it was fun. What color? I, I think it was just more of a nice gray or something like that. But just, you know, you go into those offices... And they're dirty and ugly and... Television production in New York is an indignity to everyone involved. You're in these tiny little gloomy offices and it's terrible. Yeah. Everybody's sad the whole time. Where in L.A., like, you can't turn a corner without there being, like, miniature bamboo or something. Yeah, exactly. I remember right before this fashionably strike, they did a whole redesign in that E-building and the, the pop of culture branding and all that. The, it was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I like the font. I like the font. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and there were always those fun posters up in the e-building letting you know, like, which shows mattered to them. Yeah, and it was pretty much Kardashian, Kardashian, Kardashian. And Kimora. And Kimora. <laughs> the case. So, are you excited about working on Billy on the Street? I am. It's really fun. Like, last, well, 2013, I was working on Totally Biased in New York, and I had a hiatus, and so Billy was like, come work for us. And, like, getting to write 
stuff for that show instead of because Totally Biased was a lot of it was a lot of political stuff which I enjoyed but it was a lot of like having to work real hard to be right and there was something nice about just going in and being like here are things that I think about Zoe Deschanel yeah. and have that be what I was doing and what mattered it was yeah. really fun when you say we had to worry about being being right meaning you guy had to be right or you had to be able to write it so that the show was right well, like, does that we, make sense we really wanted the show to be sort of of course on sort of like coming from the right political perspective and stuff yeah. but it meant rewriting things shit tons of times yeah um and that got old and hard i could see that yeah so do you know billy from before yes. obviously yeah i only really know him from like professional stuff and there's also the thing of like people you know primarily from like twitter like yeah. or the internet um but he was, like, a friend of friends, and then I think maybe the first time I dealt with him was when I I was a freelancer on the first season of Billy on the Street, and then, like, just sort of, like, I, I didn't meet him because I was a freelancer and I just sent in jokes, but just, like, over time sort of got to know him. I went to his birthday party, which is L.A. acquaintances. That sounds, <laughs> I like that. I support that. Yes. Um, he was such a rock star on Big Gay Sketch Show. He wrote so many funny things. Uh-huh. And even then he was doing that, man, he's been doing that man on the street stuff for a long right. time. So when it sort of blew up, I was really happy for him. Yeah. I remember Joan Rivers and he were, were good friends. And when we did the first episode of Fashion Police, one of the very first shows, she's like, we have to get Billy on there. And he did this thing in New York about fashion. And she really went to bat for him on that yeah. show. And, uh, it, that was the only one I think they did for Fashion Police, but... Yeah. He's lovely. Um, it's, you know, and I feel like gay guys in this industry who are, well, first of all, there's like, aren't that many gay guys in like comedy. Um, yeah. and people, I think when I started many, many years ago, gay guys tended to seem sort of like territorial and weird about things. Uh, and I think recently people have gotten more sort of like you know, just, like, chill and able to enjoy the fact... Because, I mean, like, being in the Billion the Street Riders room really is this, like, magical space of, oh, everyone here does have, like, strong opinions about Mackenzie Phillips. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, just that, that feeling of being in a room where everyone can have a conversation about Alfred Woodard's 1983 Academy Award nomination for Cross Creek. Right. Makes you feel <laughs> like, wow, what would it have been like if I had been eight and had friends? Yeah. That, that's a great way to describe it. Yeah. How many are there in there? Well, is it, is it a big group? Previously, it was a weird situation of like, it was like Klauser and Fogelnest sort of like full time. Yeah. And then they would have people come in for just like a couple of weeks. So when I was there, it was Jeffrey Self, John Daly, and me with them. Okay. And that was very fun. And it was also, you know, because John Daly is like silly and weird, but was the straight guy. And then. There's Jeffrey, and you just know that, like, half of his jokes are going to be delightful, and half of them are going to be, like, just unusable opinions about Marsha Gay Harden. uh, That may be the title of this podcast, (laughs) Unusual Opinions About Marsha Gay Harden. I always try to pull a little catchphrase. Um, One of the first times I sort of saw you and saw you do your thing and be funny was on Chelsea Lately. Uh Did you start as a writer and then end up on the panel, or did you start as a panel and end up on the right? How did that work? Okay. Um, do you want to hear the story of how I got, I got my job at Chelsea Lately? Yes, okay. I do. So I was writing for X-Play on G4, which was part of the Comcast family. Right. And I What was, was that show about, X-Play? It, it was about video games. Okay. So, um, and I was the head writer and the, the EP had just hired a new 
showrunner because a G4 and EP runs a, like has a couple of shows. Right. He hired a new showrunner without asking, like running the guy past me, and I was pissed as fuck and I was so angry. And my arch nemesis frenemy across from me was a development assist, uh, assistant who was just like an absolutely gorgeous little gay boy who always dressed perfectly and would bitch about me. Uh, and I started complaining to him about my job, and then he was like, well, do you want a different job? And I was like, yes. And he was like, they're taking submissions for Chelsea lately. And he had like already given a script of mine to his boss at some point in time, who was the VP of development, who was the VP in charge of uh, Chelsea lately. And so because she was sort of backing me, uh, and like I went home and I stayed up all night long writing my packet and like sent it in. And then they ended up hiring me like a week later. And so, like, I got hired as a writer, and they didn't really know of me as a stand-up. And then I, like, I got, like, I got to do, like, sketches and stuff on the show, because it was a fat guy on Chelsea lately, and so she was going to put me in stupid outfits. Right. Um, but it, it wasn't until, like, I got hired in December, and, like, the following September, I think, uh, I got to do the roundtable for the first time. So that was nice. It really... Because before that, people had always been more like, you're more of a writer. And, like, that gave me the on-camera cred that I needed. Yes. Yeah. Did you notice a result uh, uh, right away? Did you Were people reaching out to you? Or did you notice a difference right away? I didn't even think about it. Like, it was fun. And, like, people would, like, God, this may have... We, we may still have been in a MySpace era then. Yeah. But, like, people started saying stuff. But it was... I remember it was the following March that... Um, like, people had come up to me and sort of, like, would say things, particularly at gay bars. It was weird for me, because, like, when I was on X-Play, I would, like, do on-camera stuff on X-Play a fair amount, but those are, like, nerds. And so I would just randomly have somebody be like, you're that guy from X-Play or something. And that was nice. But the following... But then I started, like, at gay bars, like, your Chelsea Lately viewership was real dense there. Oh, for sure. So uh, the following March, my friend Ryan... He had a friend in from out of town, and he said, let's go to a gay bar and get guy recognized, because it was <laughs> happening regularly by then. And I was like, oh, That yeah. sounds good to me. Let's yeah. pull a Sally Field and soap dish. <laughs> and um, it, yeah. There's virtue and, and validity to pulling a Sally Field and soap dish. Yeah. Like, if you're in a bad place, why not just make yourself feel better? Why don't you go to a gay bar and get yourself recognized? Yeah. What was the best thing about that job and the worst thing about that job? Um, the best thing about that job was the morning meeting was so fun. Like, I mean, and there were wonderful things that happened. She took us to Mexico all the time. She would give you wonderful gifts and she never knew how to shop for me. So she would, on my birthday, just give me $500. That's awesome. (laughs) Yes. Um, and like, but uh, the morning meeting on that show really was, show up to work, you pour coffee in yourself, and then just be on with your friends for an hour and a half. And it really was, like, like the best, because I liked everybody and respected everybody there, and also that experience of having a focused writer's meeting where you're just trying to, like... You had to do a show that day. You had to do a show that day. So you needed to get some fucking jokes out, so the jokes came out of you. And I really, that was such wonderful training, and I love it the most. And the worst thing about that job was, because there was so much good to be had there, because she was in so many ways so generous, people started getting very territorial, and, like, Game of Throniness 
got really bad and it taught me a lot of lessons. And if I had been better at the politics, I would not have left. Yeah. But there, there did come the point where people were just covering their own asses and trying to make sure that nobody else had access to her. And like that part was hard. Um, yeah. And and like the fact that we'll, we'll text sometimes now. You and Chelsea? Chelsea. Yeah. But it really is like a, you know, fame is like a drug. It like, it changes a person. She is a wonderful human being, but like is not the person who I met. And I would like it if she were still someone I could have more of a relationship with. That'd be awesome. Yeah. You know, during the whole Fashion Police writer strike, uh-huh. um, you know, Chelsea supported her writer. So I was always contrasting what Joan, something about Joan's makeup versus Chelsea's makeup. And you hear story, generous stories about Chelsea. And, uh-huh. and I think Joan could be very generous as well. But I was always sort of in my head going, well, you know... Why did Chelsea stand up and not... You know, I don't know. You've worked with both of them. Is there a... Are they similar? Or are they really worlds apart? They're astoundingly similar. Um, and I think for... Okay, first of all, the reason that Chelsea backed her writers and Joan didn't is that the right person came to Chelsea. Like, the Writers Guild started out by contacting me, and I was like, no, if I ask this, she'll get mad at me and this will be used against me. Yeah. But this guy who is now one of her key development execs... He was the one who went to her, and he was able to position it right, and she was, like, enthusiastic about that. At the same time, did he ever say our joke in the writer's room that was used on the show? No. Because he's not funny. Um, (laughs) They were astoundingly similar people. They were both super, super funny, super, super talented, super, super confident, both almost broken by physical physical appearance issues. Both of them just sort of like crippled by these fears about how they were being physically perceived. And that's one of the reasons that that's fascinating. Chelsea was so emphatic about not acknowledging her debt to Joe and like everybody else, Kathy Griffin, Jen Kirkman, like the, the women on Chelsea lately would get hurt and sad that they could not have a good relationship with Joan because Chelsea had been so emphatic about not was, in Chelsea's head, Joan Rivers is ugly and makes fun of the fact that she's ugly and I am pretty. Um, and also, and the other thing was, was that Joan asked her to do Joan's roast and Chelsea did not want to do it because Chelsea was scared shitless of what people would say about her. And she's somebody who's really good at dishing it out, but was, and, and usually when you have somebody who likes... Like, someone like Sarah Silverman loves a fucking roast, and she knows that it's going to hurt for a couple of days afterwards, but that feeling of thrill is worth it. But Chelsea Handler was just scared shitless of, of what people would say. Has she done any roasts? No. Yeah. She would, she would not do that. She wants to be above that, and she wants to sort of, like, she wants to be able to sass people, but in a place where she's comfortable, you know? That's so interesting. Yeah. The physical stuff. That's really interesting. Oh, well, it was right before I left was the 2010 VMAs that she hosted. And she, um, she was working out like three and a half, four hours a day 
she spent a grand total of like seven hours working on her monologue. Like throughout the entire time, she spent all, she delegated almost all of the work of doing her monologue to other people. And all she was worried about was how she would look in the dress um, when she was there. And like, part of me is like, she doesn't come across that way when you watch the show. Yeah. She doesn't seem vain in that way. It's it's very interesting because if I were a woman in that situation and the world were very ready to tell me I was irrelevant based on what I looked like, I don't know how I would react, but it does make me sad. You know? Yeah. It's not an easy... It can't be easy to be in that position or to be in that game. Yeah. And to be... Female in the business, right? You know, um, and you also worked on Fashion Police for a while. Yes. What was that like from your point of view, having worked on different shows? I don't. I remember you being there at the writers' table and stuff like that, but we never really, we never hung out or we never had a real writers' room in that show. Well, I mean, it was the lack of a real writers' room that felt strange to me. That we just went in there and we read our jokes, and it was fun. But like when I showed up, I don't feel like it was the most supportive environment to be reading jokes, and I feel like. Maybe it was me getting more comfortable or or what whatever, but like things did get more comfortable. Um, it was fascinating to watch her run a writer's room to the extent that she did. We just showed up with our jokes and we read them. Yeah, uh, and I was a little bit like, well, why can't we just send them in and have somebody read them? That's the thing that bothers me. It's not an it's not an unusual problem among performers, but right. somebody who can't read a joke and understand how it's supposed to be delivered. Yeah. Uh, but then there would be things like, I remember one time we were doing a meeting at E and, uh, I had a joke and it involved something sort of like relevant or now and everybody laughed at it. And then after, then Tony came back and was like, as soon as we got out of the room, she was like, why was that funny? Explain to me why that was funny. And the thing about a key difference between Joan and Chelsea that was fascinating to me was that. If Chelsea didn't understand something, she would be like, I don't know what that is. That doesn't matter. Like, and then, like, the first time I made a Brody Jenner joke, she was like, I've never heard of this person. And then, like, three months later, we were making Brody Jenner jokes. But Joan was, Joan understood how to remain relevant in that way of, like, find out what people are talking about so that I can be able to make jokes about that. So Joan would want to know so she could she could do it, and Chelsea would be like, we're not doing it. Right. Interesting. And that was very interesting to me, and it was the fact that we didn't really... It was like we just read our own jokes, and there was no punching up somebody else's stuff. There was no sort of like riffing off of each other to get to a, a better, stronger, like, you know, Frankenstein Voltron joke. Yeah. Um, and And also, like, the fact that... Like, Fashion Police had, it was, like, it was my first time in a writer's room with other gay guys, and it had a disproportionate number of women. I mean, Chelsea lately had a lot of women on it. It's the weird thing of, I know a bunch of women who have been the only woman on a writer's staff, Yeah, but if a show hires me, they've probably, like, you've got probably, like, half a room that are women, you know? Yeah. It's like... <laughs> Um, right. So that's an interesting perspective. That sure is. Yeah. And you worked on Awkward on MTV. Again, like... That now, that's a scripted... Isn't that... That's a yeah, scripted... That was yeah, a scripted half-hour half sitcom. Was that fun? A fun change to make in well, terms of style? Getting to work on scripted was really, really fun. That was a show that was, like, all story. And, like, the jokes were there, and we would find the jokes along the way. And I was somebody who was very likely to pit, pitch jokes, but, like, there was... There would come a point in the room where Lauren, the 
the showrunner would be like, no more jokes. Just, let's just figure out this story. Which felt strange to me. And also the thing of like, so in the whole room, there was only me and one other male writer. And then everybody else was a woman. And we were having to talk about being a 16-year-old girl. And it was that thing of just having to dig deep. Like, these things that were like, natural and instinctive for these girls just sort of being like what was I like when I was 16 trying to wrap my head around what would things have been like if I had been a girl what would things be like being a girl in high school now so that was super fun yeah yeah that's cool yeah so you've gotten to do two different two two different styles of of comedy shows and stuff like that now were you you said you worked on X-Plan G4 was that were you into video games yeah did you just end up there I mean I had um I had played video games since I was young, and then, like, when I was in law school, I was like... You went I, to law school? I went to law school. Was that at Berkeley or somewhere else? I read I, that you went to Berkeley. I went to Berkeley for undergrad, and then I went to the University of Minnesota for law school, and it was terrible. I didn't come out until after my first year of law school, so I basically just spent the last two years of law school being like, what's going on in my life? Oh, my God. That's um, a lot to deal with when you're in law school. Yes. But you could compartmentalize. You're like, I'm not going to deal with that. I've got to focus on... Did you finish law school? Did you pass I the bar? I finished, and I passed the bar, but I did a terrible job at law school. Like, I really was just sort of like... Having, I had so many emotions that I had never, that I never had until I came out. And then I came out and it was like, oh God, I like this boy. How am I supposed to deal with this? Oh God, you know, what is... Stuff that people were dealing with in high school. Right. Yeah. Um, So, but during law school, I like stopped playing video games. And then I started doing stand-up when I moved back to San Francisco. Because like, in law school, I was like, I hate this. I just want to go back to San Francisco and be around interesting people and do stand-up until I, like, figure out my life. Um, so you had no intention after law school of, like, I'm going to go get a law job. No. Yeah. Well, and I did. I had, like, I really thought that the stand-up thing was just going to be, like, me blowing off some steam yeah. until I passed the bar and then settled down and got a real job. Like, right. I thought that comedy would be, like, a hobby. Yeah. Um, so I met a girl, I met two girls who worked for this small cable network in San Francisco. They, and, like, one was a host on a show, and one was the head writer of a show. And they recommended me for, like, a web writing job, and I got it. And then, like, six months later, the network got bought by Comcast, and everybody got fired. And everybody got, like, half the people got fired, half the people got moved down to L.A., and I initially got fired... And then they ended up at the last minute sort of, like, saying, hey, do you want a job? And so I, like, kept with these jobs at G4. And, like, I started playing video games because I had an excuse to. Yeah. Um, And it was fun. And it was fun to, like, write for 16-year-old boys because, like, it taught me a lot of really good lessons about how to do research for a joke. Like, just sort of... When I started out writing on X-Play, I was like, I will write one sports joke in every episode, even though I know... Nothing about sports. Like, I know some stuff about other, like, man things, but, like, sports, no. Right. Um, and so, being able to do that, or being able to write about a video game that I knew nothing about. Because you can know stuff about some video games, but, yeah. like, you really need to be writing jokes that are satisfying everybody in the audience. So, like, all types of games. Um, and part of that was just me picking up an ear from the way that um, the other people wrote about stuff. Yeah. And also just sort of, like, educating myself... And figuring, because it was a review show. So, like, you know, we would have a game review and it would be some sort of Japanese RPG. And I needed to figure out something from the backstory that could be a hook 
that I could write a joke about. Yeah, the fact that, yeah. you know, yeah, this designer was originally da-da-da-da joke. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like with we would research fashion designers or whatever on right. Fashion Police who are like, oh, God, what am I going to say about, you know, Yves well, St. Laurent or whoever it is, you know? Fashion Police was just such a machine because we had to write 20 jokes about Katherine Heigl's yellow dress, mm-hmm. and then we had to write 20 jokes about Leah Michelle's yellow dress, and then five other yellow dresses. And then at midnight that night, they would expect nine more jokes about each of those yellow dresses. Yeah. And it really taught you a lot of great strategies for finding new ways into jokes. And it would always be so funny at those writers' meetings because I would be like, I have to be the only person who, like, is this even a boat neck? I think this is a boat neck. And then you go around the room and, like, five people have boat neck jokes. Yes. Yeah, I don't even know what a boat neck is. Yes. What is that? Is that the kind of neck? Neckline? Yes. It's like a long, oh. it's like an Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Yes. That writing jokes about dresses, you know, it was my job for two and a half years. That is a very specialized, weird thing to try to have to do. Yes. So there we go. So now you went to U- University of California at Berkeley. Yes. And there was a Chelsea Clinton scandal. Yes. Break uh, it down. This is so old. But All I right. know, but it's such a juicy scandal. Okay. So I wrote a column for my campus newspaper my senior year at Berkeley. Right. And my deadline was like Tuesday at midnight for my column to come out on Thursday. And I like went to a friend's party and like got home. And I was like, oh fuck, I have to write my column. I didn't write my column. And so, and by this point it's already late. And that week was like the big game with right. uh, with Stanford, and there had been like a controversy because it was Chelsea Clinton's freshman year at Stanford, and like a columnist for the Stanford Daily had like made some sort of comment about what it was like to have her on campus, and he got fired because everybody was not supposed to talk about Chelsea in any way, yeah, because she was the president's little darling, and it, this offended my sensibilities, and like this person has privileges that we don't have. So she has to be subject to public scrutiny. So I wrote a column for my campus paper that was basically like, oh, everyone at Stanford is so highfalutin and fancy and we're just regular people. Um, So when we go to their campus, we should tear it up and destroy things and cause a riot. And um, there were two quotes in there that were quoted by... So, like, I wrote that. And then that Saturday or Sunday or whatever... When the San Francisco Chronicle had, like, an insert about the big game, and there was an article about my column, it's like, oh, no, somebody talked about Chelsea again. And they quoted two things where um, I had said we should, like, beat her up. Um, (laughs) And then that got quoted by the Associated Press, but the Associated Press, like... um, the lines were, one was destroy Chelsea Clinton, but the other one was, or no, it was, Chelsea Clinton represents the Stanford ethos of establishment worship, which must be subverted and destroyed, which they quoted as Chelsea Clinton, dot, 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 must be destroyed. Oh my God. So the first lady saw that, um, and because she was like doing a speech in San Jose or something. So she like sent two secret service agents to my home. Like I was just like at home. I had, like, a meeting with my thesis advisor that day, and I was typing, 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 trying to meet a deadline, and then, like, the administration called. No, the administration called, which at Berkeley is even weirder. Yeah. Because at Berkeley, the administration doesn't concern itself with human beings. Like, you have to go and sacrifice a goat to get anything done. Yeah. Like, this isn't... You know, like, this is an Emerson where, like, you have, like, a faculty advisor or somebody's caring about you. So, like, 
somebody from the chancellor's office called and was like, so some secret service agents are coming over to your home. We gave them your address. And I was like, what? And then they showed up and they like went through my apartment, which was so nasty. Um, and like asked me a bunch of questions and I, it was just so terrifying. Like I just didn't know what was going on. Um, and then I immediately, oh, I recorded the whole thing on like a little mini tape recorder. And that was smart. Yes. Smart thinking. And then I brought it to the campus paper and gave it to the editor who was my friend and was like, write a story about this. And they ended up not using any of the quotes because I felt like they felt like, like there was something compromised or uncertain about the tape. I wish I still had the tape. But then it became like a media circus. It became like a little media circus, though my mom insisted that I not do any on-camera appearances. Um... And she, because she was worried for your safety, yeah, she's like somebody's going to try to kill you, which was probably the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I I maybe could have gotten myself a little bit more of a blip of fame out of it, but like, oh, I I always say, um, the Moscow Times called me a bad boy invectivator, and the Washington Post called me unfunny. Um, I'll take the Moscow one. Yes. I'll be a bad boy in Vectorator. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, it was... The Moscow Times is like a weird English language newspaper in Moscow, and it writes weird stuff like that. Invectorator. Invectivator. Somebody Invectivator. Who I like that. about someone. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was... And there was like a half-page story about it on the, on the... Like, in Time magazine. And I think for me, it was just sort of like an important, like message of, like, you can do things that will make a splash. Just, like, like know that, like... Because I came from this little farm town, and I really was, like... I grew up thinking I was going to, you know, be a plebeian. <laughs> and there was something nice about it being like, well, guy, if you try real hard, maybe you can do stuff. You know? Yeah, so there was a... You got something positive out of it, apart from shitting your pants when they first showed up. Yes. It, yeah, I mean, it was, like, a little sparkle of fame that I would, like, bring up too much at parties when I was in law school... Um, but it was, um, yeah, it was good. But then for the remainder of the year, it was all I could write about in my, in my column. And I just needed to shut up about yeah, it. Yeah. You, you, by the way, I was the person that, but, um, I read one account of it and they were, somebody had, like, I guess one of the secret servicemen were saying that Mrs. Clinton said, what the fuck is this? Or yes. like they quoted her as saying, what the fuck is this or whatever. And I was like, I love Hillary. Yes. Having that, what the, what the, I love her swearing basically. Oh, I get, maybe that was the thing. Um, because he had said that on the, um, he on said that and I recorded it. And then there was an argument between the editors of the Daily Cal about whether we were comfortable using his attributed quote of, uh, Hillary Clinton. Going, what the fuck is this? Or yes. what the, who is, who the fuck is this guy? Luckily, my, my editor at the paper who like then wrote, went on to like work for Gawker, like loved gossip journalism. <laughs> it was like, yes, let's do the most scandalous thing possible. I love it. Yes. Wow, crazy. Did you feel like you? When did you first start doing comedy? When did, were you in high school or when you were? You know, when did you first think I like being funny? Um, my freshman year at Berkeley, a girl told me, "You're so funny. You need to do an open mic." And it's one of those things where like one person said it, and I was just like, I clung to it, and I was obsessed. And then it was after, so I like. Uh, I was very involved in student government and that went poorly. And then the guy who like covered student government for our campus paper became the editor in chief of the newspaper, the editor I was talking about. And he was just like, he just like gave me that column and I really, really liked it. And I really, really liked that people on campus knew who I was and people were telling me that I was funny. And so 
the second semester of my senior year at Berkeley, I went and I sort of like barely, barely, barely did stand up. And I like got just enough of a taste of it that I was like, it was all I could think about those three years. I you were obsessed. School. Like you, it was calling to you. Yeah. And I didn't do it at all for three years of law school. Uh, and then I came back after law school and what had happened is Al Madrigal had gone from being just sort of like an open micer to like kind of successful in LA. That's a guy. That's a person. He, he's now a correspondent on the daily show. Oh wow. Right on. But, uh, and I sort of saw that and I was like, oh God, if you had been doing this all that time. If you hadn't lost those three years. Right. And so, and then I like, and it was the weird thing of how much should I go at stand up because everybody else who was starting at the same time as me, most of them were like little straight boys with wealthy parents who were 22, um, who were like doing this like whole hog. It was their life. And I was an ancient 26. Like yeah. I just was like, I'm so old. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, like, didn't have, I didn't have parents who were going to be able to sort of, like, cushion anything. So I was very much like, well, I have to just be a hobbyist. I have to just be a hobbyist. And then I took, like, three months off to study for the bar. And when I came back, everybody was better. And I, like, felt weird about it. And... It took me a long time. It wasn't until I got that first writing job that I was able to sort of like give my permit, give myself permission to be like, this is what you do. And my dad, my, I had had writing jobs for like four, four or five years and not four or five years, like three years. And I would refer to stand up as being my job. And my dad would be like, that's not your job. That's not your job. That's like your hobby. And it wasn't until I was on Chelsea lately that they could sort of understand that, like, that was my Your job. Yeah. So were they were they always trying to get you to do something else? Was Did you feel a lot of pressure from that, or you just felt like they weren't quite on board? I mean, the thing is, is I clearly felt a great deal of pressure from my parents. I went to law school because my mom told me I had to. Yeah. And I just never disobeyed my mom. But, like, coming out was sort of, was like... A crack. A crack in a lot of things, but one of those is just sort of being like, oh, I'm never going to satisfy them. Like, I'm just never going to satisfy them. So... Did they not... Were they not okay when you came out? Or I mean, how was it? Whose parents... Were your parents great about yeah, it? Yeah. Like, were they? Well, my dad was gone by okay. that point. My mother, we never talked about it. So uh-huh. it was never... She never... We never talked about it. I came out in a letter, and my sister acknowledged that she got it, and there was no fallout from it, but it was nothing that was ever talked about. Yeah. Like, she didn't want to know if I was dating anyone or anything like that. So it wasn't dramatic, but it wasn't... You know, she's not going to be in a parade. Yeah. I mean, I am just bad about expecting too much out of people, and, and will sort of, like, get angry at my parents for the number of aspects of my life they just cannot engage with. Which, at this point, is essentially all of them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they... But they they have been there weirdly in ways. Like, when I... Like, I left Chelsea lately unexpectedly and very dramatically. And I really thought at that point in time, like, as soon as things got bad, they would be like, well, you should go be a lawyer now. Um, right. And they didn't. And they said you did that thing, you could do another thing. Yeah, they were, that surprised me. Just because a lot of it is so much like, like my mom was a cafeteria lady, my dad worked construction, and they didn't know anybody who went to college, who, yeah. who wasn't sort of like, 
a person who they paid money to for their skills that haven't gone to college. Right. Um, and I just don't think that they could, like, conceive of shaping one's own life or career to the extent that people here do. Right. Um, so, so I can't really begrudge them that. But they really... It, it just doesn't make any sense to them. But you once know. you came out, you thought, if I can be true to that part of myself, then I can... That, well, let's go for a broke and do and and do everything that I want. Part of it was an interesting, like I'll never be respectable. Like, so why not? You know, yeah. It was it was very funny. There's a um, there's a comic who's like 25 or 26 who started when he was like 18 years old, and he like we had a dramatic coffee where he was like, I'm gay. He's not out. He wasn't out on stage. He is out on stage now. Uh, it's wrong. Or, no, I should not say who it is. <laughs> um, but he was saying he wanted to go to law school because he was like, oh, I can go be a lawyer and be gay and that'll be fine. But in stand-up, I can never be successful. And I was like, that's so weird because I was like the opposite. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I was like, I will go do this bohemian thing because, you know, I'm never going to be a congressman. Yeah. I see. What, was there anything about law school that stuck with you that, that are, that's valuable that you, I'm so, I I learned that and I apply it here and there? I mean, scads of stuff. Like, it's wonder, like, it's just such a practical thing that, like, you know, I can still read a contract and understand things. Right. Like, I can, you know, when the Affordable Care Act decision came out, I read it. Like, I read all hundred and whatever pages it was. Just so I could be like, oh, really? Defining as a tax? Ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and like gay rights stuff, I appreciate all of that. It organized my mind so completely. Like, I had to realize after law school that I was having relationship arguments like a lawyer. Like that I was making bullet-pointed lists of here's why you are wrong. Yeah. And not thinking about you may be hurting someone's feelings in right. doing that or like you, you don't need to push it this hard. I have a friend that when you argue with him, it's he's, his his lawyer thing. And yeah. you're like, no, this isn't that world. You're not in the courtroom right now. Right. So that, but I do think it was astoundingly valuable for being able to write jokes because the law is always about sort of like, you understand that any case is both a fact pattern and a law pattern. And you have to sort of, like, get those facts to work with the law. And there's some lawyers who are good at one thing, some lawyers who are good at the other. And some people are good at both. But, like, it is about taking facts and structuring them in the way that you need to. So there's a fact pattern and a humor pattern. Right, exactly. Um, and that was what something on Fashion Police that I really tried to think about. Like, I didn't like to make jokes about things that I didn't believe were true. Right. And there were a lot of sort of myths about celebrities that would develop, especially around that table. Jennifer yeah. Aniston can't keep a man. You know, That's things like that. That's true. <laughs> but I don't know what they were, but they were sort of like, I don't, I would be like, I don't think that's true. And I would always try to not pitch jokes that I didn't think were true. Well, there was also just the thing of Jackie Beat and I went to, like, both of our first fashion police things, we went to the Golden Globes at Jones House beforehand, and then we right. met up with the rest of you guys. But it was when we came in and that we had seen her reactions to the dresses. And I sort of, like, it took me a while to process what was going on, but just sort of realizing, like, oh, if I understand what Joan will think about this dress, my joke will be more likely to get on, because she's not going to say that joke looks like, that dress looks like shit if she honestly likes that dress. Right. Similarly with Chelsea, I mean, there were things of just, like, there came the point where everyone was her friend, and then writing jokes for her became no more fun. But before that, there still was just, like, 
things that she she didn't want to tell that joke or she thought that joke was hack. Like, she had a very firm, no horse face jokes about Melissa Rivers' stance, um, which I respected greatly. You've got to. Yes. Uh, you got to. Um, I heard that Sarah Jessica Parker was lovely at Jones Memorial to oh, really? members of the, the Fashion Police staff. And I loved hearing that because we made a lot of jokes about her. Yeah. And some of them were horse face jokes. I mean, the thing about Sarah Jessica Parker is God knows she's successful enough to be gracious. Yeah. And, um, you know, she's one of those people that I'm sure she's crazy and terrible to a lot of people, but I just feel like she gets it. And yeah. I, 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 I kind of love her. her. Yeah. I kind of love her. Look, when they made that second Dirty Dancing, and yeah. they cast a Gentile yeah. to play her role. I was like, you missed it. Yeah. You don't understand what was awesome about her. I remember watching that movie. Was she in Dirty Dancing? She was in Dirty Dancing. She, she wasn't... She was somebody else. She was, like... She was the best friend. Of Jennifer Grey? Uh, uh, no, no, no. Not Dirty Dancing. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, no, Footloose. I'm oh, so yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Footloose. In Footloose. I'm confusing my Jewish dancing movie. That's right. Footloose is not a Jewish movie, except for her. Right. But, like, the sassy one-liners, I don't think all these dogs are barking. Just, when she said that, I was like, she's the most sophisticated person on the planet. Yeah. I want to be her. Um, And I love it. And when she, like, when she goes on, like, Conan or Letterman and talks about riding the bus, I'm just so proud of her. Yeah. I I do. She seems kind of like a cool, you know... I don't know. She has those designer gowns. She takes the subway. Yes. I'm down with SJP. I am. I had a friend who was her second assistant for like a week. And he says that um, Matthew Broderick wore the same clothes the entire time he worked (laughs) That's an amazing story. Yes. That's awesome. So when when the thing, the Chelsea thing happened, was that devastating personally? Or was it, was it, from the outside, it seems like a big event, but was it, what was it like? It was very devastating personally. Um... It was basically a situation of, I had, <laughs> politics at work had turned against me. I had made a couple of sort of like tactical run moves. And so I was like hardcore on the outs around the time of the VMAs. And then, um, my, I had shitty managers at the time who were telling me that I needed to leave for this to sell a show to, uh, they were like, she won't let you sell it. If you're still there, you need to leave so you can sell it. And what I failed to think about was because she had previously been attached to it. And now they were going to be the ones who were producing it. And I should have realized they're just trying to make more money for themselves. Did not realize that. And so I asked my agents, should I leave? And then they immediately turned around because they were also her agents and said, he's thinking of leaving. And so she came, well, she did not come. The EP came, breathed fire in my face, and was like, uh, you either need to give up everything else that you're doing and just focus on this job or leave. And I was like, fine, I'll fucking leave, because they didn't expect that I would do that. Um, and it was devastating. I spent 2011 regretting. Like, I spent 2011 just sort of, like, regretting, but then I had to do some valuable work to get my feet under myself, that I appreciate to this day. I had to learn some things about myself. And there was just like, it was something nice about knowing that in a Galadriel way, I was strong enough because Chelsea lately was so much money and so much satisfaction from not pushing myself and not doing much with myself. And also 
I'm I'm a fat guy who has never been particularly popular amongst homosexuals. And, like, being in a situation where I could walk into a bar and every 24-year-old would want to do anything to hold my attention was just the best feeling. But do I want more out of life than that? Um, And am I just rationalizing now because it is no longer true? But, I mean, it was... It was nice to realize I could say no to this thing, you know, because it was like everyone on that show was getting real hooked on all of the things that they were getting to enjoy. And I didn't just want to be that. Yeah. Well, and it's also like anything that's really traumatic. Yeah. There's always something good that can come out of it. Sometimes it takes a long time or sometimes it like the strike for me was like, fuck, that was craze, craze. Like, but it was that, but, but, you know, then you do, you do kind of figure out what you're made of. Yeah. And like, I, I spent, I spent a while just sort of doing the projects that my managers told me to do. I figured out that that wasn't making money. And then I sort of like later in 2011 started hustling to just get myself the jobs that I could. And then there was this point in like 2012 where I was like, freaked out about something or just worried about what will the next job be. And then, um, my friend, Ali Wong, she was just like, guy, you always work. And there was just sort of that thing of like, like all of the shows I had managed to like, basically that I had figured out how to be a person who is in Los Angeles and a writer who does not have that job that they go to every morning, but still, as a regular and like his regular income and goes from job to job. And something comes along. Yeah. And that was like stressful. And we also work, we work in such an like appearances and like who seems successful and who seems unsuccessful sort of world that I needed to get over being self-conscious about what do people think about me? Or do people think that, I'm a failure or whatever and just start being like, no, you're fine. You've done a lot of stuff. You'll do more stuff. You've been on TV. You'll be on TV some more. This too shall pass. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it was good for me. Yeah. And also, I mean, the whole time I had been on Chelsea lately, I was like going off and doing stand up and making a lot of money. And then that, But all of that was, like, through Chelsea Lately. Right. And, like, I never got booked in clubs and stuff because, like, basically gay guys don't get booked in, like, as as club headliners. And I sort of wasn't working my way up the path at the time because I was like, why on earth would I go feature for somebody and make $800 for a weekend when I could go off and just do a college on my own and make, you know, three times as much? Um, And, like being in the wilderness again forced me to refocus on stand-up and like be good at that and be focused on that yeah um and remember that like that's the thing that nobody can take away from me yeah you always have that a lot of comedians say no matter what happens with tv i can always go and do that yeah what do you love about stand-up oh uh the immediacy of it is really nice like it forces you to be on it forces you to be quick um like, live performance is so nice because you're engaged with people and 
you know, that like something can happen that will never happen again. While at the same time, I have enough control and mastery over myself and my own material to like make it a good show. Like it's always a good time. It's, there are those weird, you know how sometimes you can ejaculate, but essentially barely orgasm. Yeah. Like there are sets like that. There are sets like that that are just sort of like off and like, that's that. All right. Um, and like, sometimes they can be bad. Sometimes you can, and, and at this point, when I feel bad about a set, it is not because I really had a bad set that somebody watching would be like, oh, that was unenjoyable. It is just sort of like, I didn't realize this possibility or I stumbled on something that I shouldn't have stumbled on. But like, uh, they're sort of little things. Yeah. But it's like getting to go and like be on in this dangerous situation where things could go wrong and things do go wrong on a regular basis all around you and just having to make it work. Like that's, that's the most fun. And I, one of the things that sort of hurts me is this is LA. So we should all just be doing like a March of TV ready material. But I really like talking to an audience and having that sort of that danger of you, you could not do the best possible thing. If that makes any sense. Like, you hope when they say something to you, you'll come back with something absolutely hilarious and perfect. It doesn't always work that way. But then when you're driving home, you figure out what a better answer would be. So you're more prepared for next time. Yeah. But like, and also people get that fun feeling of like, I was at a show. This happened just for me. Yeah. That person was smart just for me. Uh, and I love that. Love it. What was it like being on Lost Comic Standing? Oh. What was the best part of that? Or what was it like? Um, I was barely on that show. Like, yeah. I was just on the, the like, they, like, had 100 comedians. They narrowed it down to 20, and I didn't make the 20. Yeah. They were just nice enough to put me on that show, um, like, four times, like, with various compilation episodes and stuff. What was nicest about it was I went out, and I did my set, and I had realized that day that my set was probably a little bit short. And so I was considering adding in another joke, but you were supposed to vet it through the network and I hadn't done that. And I was going back and forth. And my manager was just like, just do your set as it is. And I got done and they were like, your set was a little bit short. And then, but at, like my set was fine and it did well. But then after that, the judges came. It, it, the best thing about being on last comic standing was realizing I don't get scared by television anymore. I mean, I, you're sort of like aware but, like, everybody else was in this situation of, like, oh, my God, I'm doing TV. And for me, I've just done it enough that it's not like I'm doing TV. And, like, being – because of that, being able to be present enough to, like – I paneled really well on that show. Like, when, when they said stuff to me, I had good responses for everyone. Yeah. Um, and that felt nice. Yeah. Um, you felt and, like, I can do this. Yeah. I'm not too freaked out. Right. I'm not as freaked out as most of those people over there. Yeah. And just sort of, like, it was nice to, to have that comfort and realize in future situations, like, because when it comes to stuff like paneling or riffing or doing something that you're not completely, like, steady on in a situation where there are cameras on, that can feel really scary and dangerous. Yeah. And being more comfortable with it allows you to do some of those riskier things. Yeah. You can take a chance. You're in, yeah. you're, you're, in, you're in the moment. You're in yourself. Yeah. Um, you're in one of my favorite uh, underrated romantic comedies ever, No Strings Attached, starring Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman. And that's where I was like, 
I loved whoever wrote this, and it was Liz Merriweather. Yes. I thought it was really smart and funny, and, like, I didn't... It, it kind of got... I think Ashton had a little cheese on him at the time. Yeah. And I think people dismissed it. Anyway, you were in it. I... That was the most fun. Um, I enjoyed the... Like, sometimes I will get sad or uncertain or whatever, and then I always just get to tell myself, Guy, you were the sassy gay friend in a romantic comedy. Like, yeah. you can just keep going. Um... It was the most fun, and, and that Liz is is so funny and so like real and honest, and like the earlier stages of that script were even more exciting. Like that, like it was in a, a like big studio production movie, um, so it had to be a little bit mainstream, so no one would feel uncomfortable about their daughters. None of the executives would feel uncomfortable about their daughters, but like. There was, at, at one point, a joke about going on a dick-tasting tour of Napa um, <laughs> that was perfectly delightful. Um, would you like to hear the story? Of, yes, I would of, like to hear whatever story. Okay, I will tell it. Okay, how I got that job was um, Diablo Cody's husband worked on uh, Chelsea Lately, so she invited some of us to her Christmas party. And I was there. And Diablo like, Cody's Christmas party. Yes. And as I was getting ready to leave, my friend had gone into the bathroom and I just started essentially reading a, a couch full of people for no reason. I was just sort of like, I was on and in party mode and I was just making fun of people. And then I realized that it was, um, Liz Merriweather. Um, and I, who, uh, who went on to create New Girl. Yeah, and like, yeah. they had just done the thing about uh, the New York Times article about the Fempire then, and I felt self-conscious and I left. And then like five... About mo- the, oh, the Fempire? Yes. The, the, the women that write together, yeah. Diablo and Liz, and yeah. Yeah, um, and Lorene Scafaria, who's amazing. Yeah. Um, so then like five months later, I was at um, uh, Whole Foods, and she was there, uh, and I said, oh, hey, you're Liz Merriweather... We met at Diablo Cody's Christmas party. Hey. And she said, yeah, I'm working with a movie on Ivan Reitman. He thinks you're amazing. He just thinks you're the funniest. And my, like, in my head, I was like, that's the douchiest fucking response. Like, I say hello to her, and the first thing she does is fucking name drop about this guy she's working with. Fine. And then I went off, and two days later, I was at work, and... At Chelsea. At the yes. Time. And my manager called, and she was like, so... Ivan Reitman and Liz Merriweather are writing this movie, and in the movie there are three room, like girl roommates for the main character, but they want to rewrite one of the girl roommates to be you. And I was like, oh, it wasn't douchey, was it? No! Yeah. Yes. So that was really exciting and really scary. Um, and like... Because acting in film, like, yes. had you done anything like it? No. All right. So, <laughs> the first day that I was there, I kept saying, I'm not an actor. Like, people would say, like, are you one of the actors? And I'd be like, I'm, I'm not an actor. I'm a comedian. And then after I said it for, like, the fourth or fifth time, uh, Olivia Thurlby, who's, like, a queen of the, the indies, she just turned to me and said, then why are you here? And I was like, all right. I will not say that again. She made a fair point. I am at a table with professional actors. I will not do that. Um, and that first day was just sort of like a picnic table of like Ashton Kutcher, Natalie Portman, Mindy Kaling, Olivia Thurlby, Jack Johnson, like everybody 
what's his name? The guy, Jake Johnson? The guy from The New Girl. Yeah. Um, everybody was, like, famous and a real actor. And I, like, got intimidated by it, but, like, I ended up... I, I don't know if I was good at all in that movie. I just know that I learned how to be there and and do that, and I, I tried to do the best job that I could. It was interesting and intimidating. Everything around it, everything other than being on camera, was like a fun adventure that I enjoyed the fuck out of the whole time. Um, but, like, being able to do anything with the words that I was given, I, you know, you pretty much just said stuff and was there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was fun. But you had fun. You did, and, and I love that movie. I think it's fun. All right, before the, the thing started, you picked a few cards from the uh, observation deck. What okay. was the worst job you ever had? The worst job I ever had was for Ashton Kutcher some moments, some months after I was in a movie with him. Um, I wrote on Punked, and that was just not a show I should write on. Yeah. Like, that was just, it was dudes, it was bro dudes being bro dudes, and, like, so much of the show's production involved them hanging out with the posses of the people who were going to be on the show. Right. And, like, bro duding out, and I, it was just usually, and also there were no jokes on that show, and usually I'm able to sort of, like, prove my value to a place by, like, slinging out some jokes that everybody's going to like. Yeah. And this, I was mainly just a typist, and it was terrible. And it was terrible money. Um, and I had, just had to listen to the other writers talk about which of the famous women from the show that they were having sex with. And it was... And they were sweet boys. They were sweet, nice boys. It was just... Every day I was there was insufferable. And I hated <laughs> it. It was like... It was also one of those, like, write something and then show it to somebody and have them just immediately tell you how terrible you are. Ugh. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, not a good, not a yes. good fit, as they say. Not a good fit. Um, who was your celebrity crush when you were growing up? Um, let's go with, uh, with Mario Lopez. Let's do go with him. I'm, I'm down. I have the Mario Lopez gene. What, what do you mean the Mario Lopez gene? Well, I think he's super hot. And I like those dimples and then the body. And I like his gay vanity. I like straight guys that have gay vanity, like Joey yes. Lawrence has it. Right. Um, oh, Joey Lawrence meant a lot to me. Those biceps, they got so yeah, amazing on I, Blossom. Oh, my God. And I recently redesigned my, redecorated my room, and I found these old lockers. So I posted on Facebook, I need teen pictures to put in my lockers, oh, and people wonderful. started sending all these. And, of course, Lopez has got, has got, has got to be really prominently displayed. Uh, well, I feel like there's something, there's an interesting difference between gay guys and straight girls just in that, like, we, I think we, we can pretend that we don't, but I think we kind of have cheesy mainstream tastes when oh, it yeah. comes to guys. And, like, my friend Louie is just like, well, you're dudes. You're just interested in what's visual. But I also think there's the thing of, like, girls are like, which one is sensitive? Which one would like me? And when you're a gay kid, you're just like, they would all be disgusted by the notion that I was even attracted to them. <laughs> I just want the one that is best. Yeah, exactly. And I like I like the one that wears, you know, the tight tank top and no, you know what I mean? Yes. I don't like the ones that have the secret amazing body. Right. I like the one that's like, here it is, you know, I'm going to go jogging without a shirt on, whatever. Um, did you, did any of those guys ever end up on Chelsea lately? Were you like... Oh, you're only setting me up for this because I already told you that it was true. Busted! There was a gorgeous... But we, you didn't go to there it, was, so. There was a gorgeous period of time in 2009 <laughs> where it was like Mario Lopez was on and then Casper Van Dien was on. And, Starship Troopers. And then like Ryan Philippe. And it was yeah. like, oh my God, 
everyone I masturbated to in the 90s. It, like, everyone I masturbated to in, like, high school is now on this show. Um, and there is something, like... Would you have much to do with them? With, as a writer, would you see them? Would you talk to them? No, and I wouldn't even go down. You would just, like, yeah. watch. But then, like, um, oh, Ryan Philippe came to... No, not Ryan Philippe. Uh, Peter Facinelli. Okay. He and Jenny Garth came to Chelsea's like 32nd or 33rd birthday in uh, Mexico. And like, you know, it was like, I'm at a bar and like Peter Facinelli is like play feeling me up. And it's like, I did not expect this to happen. Like there's some, like sometimes in LA, the wretched refuse of someone you were super attracted to in the past will like wash up into your life. And it's, like, amazing. Would you like a horrible, embarrassing, like, revelation? Sure. Okay. So, when I was in high school, uh, there was a show up, there was a bodybuilding show on ESPN, and I would, like, do anything in my power to video record it so that I could have that to masturbate. Spank so, bank. Yes. I got it. Uh, and it was, like, they ran through some hosts, and at the very end, they had this host that was sort of like a... A young, like, vaguely, like, ethnic or Italian guy with, like, ridiculous biceps and stuff. And he's now just, like, a comic that I know. And there's just this, I mean, that weird thing of being, like, oh, it's that guy who was part of sexual nirvana in my head in 1995. Now he's just someone who's a regular on Sons of Anarchy who I see at the comedy store. Yeah. Um, and it's... What was his name? Oh, I should remember his name. I don't remember his name. We're friends. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. Yes. I love that story. Now, what? Uh, here's one more. What's the movie you've seen the most? What movie have you uh, seen the most times? The Party Girl. Because with Parker Posey? With Parker Posey. Hey, hey, hello. Uh, when I was in college and law school, I had a video cassette that had The Party Girl and Metropolitan on it. And when I got sad, I would watch that until I was not sad anymore. Uh, Part, just Party Girl, or both? Both of them. I would yeah. just watch it until it was done. But Party Girl, in some, I have watched more. Because I've also just watched it a shit ton since then, where I haven't really watched Metropolitan. Yeah. Um, no, it, like, I, one time I did a podcast, and, like, it was, like, a straight guy and a straight girl who, or younger comics who were doing it, and I was like, Party Girl, and I had explained it to them as it, the movie taught me how to be gay, and, like, the straight guy did not understand. He was like, oh, because you really like the gay guy? And it's like, no. No. It was about watching Parker Posey be amazing and being like, oh, I want to be that kind of, you know... Life of the party. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I need to take another look at that. I mean, I'm sure it's a terrible movie. Yeah. But, like, when I was, like, 19 and seeing somebody just sort of, like, be awesome... Yeah. Uh, and, you know, frivolous and sassy... Uh, you know, when I thought I was probably going to have to be a construction worker one day. Yeah. I was like, yeah, this is great. I got to interview Parker around that time for that uh, movie, for really? Movie Line Magazine, yeah. And uh, I also remember meeting her before then at the, I got to go to the Strictly Ballroom premiere, and I remember dancing with her. Really? But she hadn't, you know, yeah. gone up yet. And then she blew up, and we were kind of friendly for a while. If I see her now, I'd say hi or whatever, but yeah. she was so cool in that movie. She yeah. was so good. And, uh, God, the 90s. Shit, the 90s. Man, I love them. Um, all right. I live in sadness that I got to experience no, like, 1990s Manhattan homosexuality. Like, I 
like in my head was just like that's the life. What would it? World. What would it? What would you do if you got to experience it? Certain clubs, certain. Well, I mean, the thing is, and the thing is, is, I would have had none of the skills or abilities to be able to like swim around there or do anything. Like those kids who showed up in like at eighteen years old and immediately became club sensations and then killed their drug dealer slash boyfriends. Right. Like. I was never going to be that person, but I will always be mad at myself for not having been that person, right. which means I will continue to have wonderful and exciting experiences in the 21st century because I'm mad at my 19-year-old self for being bookish and, like, risk-averse. Right. You should have gone for it. So yes. now you're more... Now you're... Fuck it. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, if the phone could ring tomorrow and you could get any gig or any dream job, what would it be? Oh. That's wonderful. You can't ask that. You can't ask that. Why? Because... Is it a bummer? Well, because, no, because I would say in our world, that question is real enough that you, you want to give a question that seems practical and reasonable when in actuality, the answer is like, God, I would like to, I mean, like the thing I would most like to do, most like to do is to have some variety of late night or variety show of my own. And that, that seems both within reach and inappropriately out of reach such that I really should say, oh, I would love to... God, is there a show on television right now I would most love to write for? And the thing is, is my answer would be Empire. And the thing is, is that's a job I might turn down if it was up for two weeks. Why would you turn it down? I, well, I wouldn't... Because I shouldn't be writing an hour long. Yeah. Like, and it's amazing. And I would never give, give up a guild income. But, like... I've now done enough jobs and enough wonderful jobs that I understand that, like, writing for The Tonight Show or any of those shows would be, oh, no, you want to know what? Like, here's the more practical answer. The more practical answer is writing for fucking Broad City. I would love to write for Broad City. It's funny as shit. And that's, like, within the realm of perfect, perfect reason. Um, No one's going... You know, um, but like... No one's listening to this driving going, oh, please. But (laughs) but the thing is is that it is the weird thing of like, I feel like I've managed to always wrangle away for me to be on camera, but I've always felt like slightly Cinderella-ish about like, I only get to be on camera if like I finish all of my chores. Right. And like, right for the show. and And then at midnight it's over. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to those people who just like, you know, are, pop up. Yeah. Like you did in No Strings Attached. Like I did in No Strings Attached. That's right. What would blow your mind of the kid that you were growing up on a farm about your life now? Oh, everything. Like I, that is the thing that like most excites me and sort of makes me uh, get mad at myself for being depressed is just like, if I, if. <laughs> If the kid, like, that I get to be on a TV on a regular basis, that I know some of the people that I do, that, like, the, like the first time, the, the first time I remember meeting Margaret Cho, she just looked up and said, oh, hey, guy. And, like... She knew who you were. Yeah. And, like, in her head, we had met before. And, like, I was just, like... Like, she was a contemporary, almost. Yes. And, like, that felt crazy and strange. Or... But mostly it would be, like, if I could tell 15-year-old me anything, I would show him photos of the guys I have gotten to jizz on. I would just be like... (laughs) I would just be like, yeah, you know, 
You're fat. <laughs> this is a hard world. But like some some awesome shit's gonna happen. Like And you're gonna get to jizz on these guys. Yeah. In them sometimes. That's amazing. Yes. That's fantastic. I think that's the greatest note to end on of any podcast I've ever done. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's been really fun talking to you. It's we haven't worked together service. much, but I hope we get to work together Absolutely. again on something. Um, good luck with everything you're up to. And um, follow Guy on Twitter at... Guy Brown. Awesome. All right. My favorite tweet that you tweeted recently is... I wrote it down. Um, oh, hang on. My most important job is being a mom. Because <laughs> I love when women say that. I, lo- I just like, love it. And I don't know why I love that quote so much, but... Thank you for having me. All right. It was awesome. Bye. Thanks again to Guy Branham for being such a terrific interview subject. Um, So this happened. I went to the New Beverly Theater here in L.A., Revival House, twice this weekend. The first time I saw all that jazz. And the big takeaway from it for me this time was how good the dialogue was. There was some really great lines in that movie. And I think my favorite was when Anne Reinking was sort of challenging Roy Schneider for being such a pussy hound. And she says, I just wish you would be less generous with your cock. Um, Because I think who hasn't thought that at at one point in their life? I've been on one end of that conversation. And then on Sunday, I saw the 30th anniversary screening of The Breakfast Club, which still holds up. John Hughes is a genius. And for me, this time, the takeaway was Anthony Michael Hall, how good he was. Man, he was good. He had so many little subtle things going on. He sort of broke my heart. And um, so shout out to him if he's listening. I don't know if he is. But if he is, he killed it. He crushed it. He did it all. All right. Thanks for listening. That's all I have for you this week. And uh, join me next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.